following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. So glad to be starting another book discussion as we continue our progress through the history of Middle-earth. I remember the days when people used to tease me that, like, someday I'm going to have to, like, do classes all the way through the history of Middle-earth. Um, and how rewarding it has been to actually do so, hasn't it? Um, so really looking forward to getting started discussing Morgoth's Ring. Uh, as uh, Morgoth's Ring is one of my favorite uh, volumes of the of the series, though I have to admit, the primary reason I love this book uh, is I am a huge fan of the Athrobeth uh, of Finrod and Andreth, which comes near the end. Um, so uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm really excited uh, to get to that, uh, and we're going to start seeing some initial setup actually for that. I think even in tonight's session. Uh, so that's going to be really great. So one thing, let me just say also as a kind of disclaimer before I begin, I have no idea how the schedule for this class is going to go. Um, I've scheduled, I think, 12 sessions uh, for this book. Um, we ended up taking 17 for Sauron Defeated. I don't think we got, I, I ended up slowing down to a crawl during the uh, Notion Club papers because there's a lot of really, um, uh, well, rich, uh, not to say dense material uh, in the middle of the Notion Club papers there, uh, which I wanted to make sure that we kind of worked through as carefully as I could. So well, that ended up taking a good deal longer than expected. A, a very, a, a large chunk of Morgoth's Ring is taken up with the revisions of the Silmarillion material that Tolkien did um, after the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so a lot of it is, you know, like tonight, is contains relatively little new material. Just looking at a couple newer versions of an older thing that we've already talked about more than once, actually, in the Aino Lindale. Um So... That's why if you look at the schedule, you will see I have what might at first blush appear to be quite unrealistically large chunks of text set out for us, like tonight. I'm planning to discuss 45 pages of text, more really, because I'm talking about the foreword as well. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But I think we should. I, I, you know, We're not going to be kind of going through... Um, you know, like the new, the, you know, like the, the, the C text of the Ainu Lindale paragraph by paragraph, because we've already talked about most of that stuff before. Instead, what I'm going to be doing, I want us to be, um, my primary goal in talking through Morgoth's Ring, um, really, I mean, all of these later texts, is to kind of try to focus a little bit more on the forest instead of the trees. Obviously, you know, I'm a I'm a great tree watcher, right? When it comes to that, but um, uh, but again, what I'm interested in is less like let's track each individual detail. It's like look at each paragraph and see how each paragraph is different. Um, what I want to be focusing on here is what are the trends? Like, what's the story here, right? What's happening in Tolkien's creative process that we can see here? So I'm going to be focused a little bit more on the big picture. Uh, so we'll. Um, We'll see. We'll see how that. We'll see how that how that works out. Uh, but um, yeah. Okay. Um, so 
That's my little disclaimer. Uh, I'm sure I don't even really need to tell you at this point to take the published schedule with a sort of grain of salt. But uh, we'll... uh, We'll see how it goes. Anyway, before we get started, a uh, couple announcements. I won't take as long on these tonight as I did last night uh, because, I, you know, uh, most of you will have had more of a chance to hear about many of these things. Um, but I just wanted to, I do definitely want to mention them. Uh, the first thing I wanted to mention is that we're, we've done a, a, a change, we've made a change in the Tolkien Professor podcast feed. Um, due to a bunch of issues we've been having, and I know many of you are aware some of you painfully aware of the uh, some of the 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 difficulties that we have been facing in with uh, in trying to wrangle uh the podcast feed um it's one of the issues with having this old clunky feed that was set up in uh from podcasting terms the cetozoic era uh anyway um we have transferred that over to a new we've so we we decided to just kind of do a wholesale change uh and we have totally changed the hosting program the hosting platform that we're using the feed hasn't changed so the Tolkien professor feed is still the same you should still be able to get it and everything but um the backstage things are entirely different this has two consequences that you will notice i'm hoping number one and here's where the hope comes in is that I'm hoping that this will change. Uh, this will fix a bunch of the problems that we've been having. Uh, episodes should be able to be posted more promptly, and there should be able to be more um, uh, fewer issues. Uh, that is to say, fewer errors and uh, problems, fewer of the fights we've been having with iTunes behind the scenes and that kind of thing. Um, so hopefully a lot of those issues should be ironed out by this process. The second thing is that since we were doing house cleaning anyway and changing everything behind the scenes, we decided to make a significant change. And that is we've pulled out Exploring the Lord of the Rings to be a podcast feed on its own. Uh, because right now the, the the Tolkien Professor podcast feed has been ho- has been holding both the Exploring the Lord of the Rings episodes and uh, the Silmarillion Film Project episodes, which makes it a little bit awkward for people to kind of track through. People want to catch up on one or, you know, people who are following one or both, making it a little bit easier to sort of focusing uh, on that. Uh, So that, like, you know, if people who want to, like, just watch Exploring the Lord of the Rings or to catch up on it from the beginning can just go to that feed and listen to straight through from the beginning. So that should make things a lot simpler, I think, uh, and be a lot cleaner uh, as a listening experience for folks. So now my primary content is going to be sitting on three separate feeds. The uh, Silmarillion Film Project will still be on the the old Tolkien Professor feed, the, 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 the original one. Exploring the Lord of the Rings has its own feed, and of course the Mythgard Academy will continue to run on its own podcast feed, which it's had for a while too. And of course all of these, all the video recordings of all of these things are on their playlists on our YouTube channel as well as they've always been. Or, I say always. As they've been for a long time. Um, so yeah, so that's what's happening there just to kind of explain how that's going to go. Uh, see, Christopher says, will I be removing the exploring episodes from the Tolkien professor feed? I don't know. Uh, so I'm not in charge of this migration. I have people who know way more about this kind of thing than I do doing this sort of thing. Um, uh, one of the reasons that, uh, 
my podcast feed was getting so old and clunky and and hard to manage was that it was set up a very long time ago. The other is that it was set up a very long time ago by me. Uh, so it's now in the hands of far more competent people. And I, so I don't know the answer to that, Christopher. Um, but we'll see, I think. Um, so yes, Tomas, you do need to subscribe separately for the Exploring the Lord of the Rings podcast. You can, you, it's out there on the uh, podcast platforms now. Just search for Exploring the Lord of the Rings and that should come up and you can subscribe to that separately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, no, exactly, Christopher. I, I'm pretty sure the plan is to remove them so that they, you know, we, again, we, there's less confusion and we don't create any crossovers unintentionally and stuff. So yeah, yeah, no, that that's the plan. That's the plan. I believe that's the plan, but again, not in charge of it. So I, I, I'm a little hesitant to be a hundred percent confident when I don't know. Um, Karita, great question. The next film film session is going to be, that's my next announcement next Thursday, the 26th. So a week from tomorrow, March 26th will be episode one uh, or session one, I should say of some film season five we're going to be starting season five season five is going to cover the part of the silmarillion from the arrival of men in beleriand through the dagor bragalak uh so we're going to get to a lot of characters we've been really looking forward to um the story of andreth and ignor we're going to be we're going to we're going to we're going to try to do like the entire arc of the story of andreth and ignor actually uh which is going to be really fun uh, to try to do. And, um, uh, and we're going to do, we're, we're going to get to do the, the story of Arathel and Aeol, which is one that I've been really looking forward to as well. Uh, so anyway, lots of really, really fun stuff going to be happening in season five. Um, uh, so that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> Tony says we're going to finish some film way before exploring the Lord of the Rings. Quite possibly. Quite, but despite how ambitious some film is in its own right, and we're planning like 20 to 25 seasons of some film, yeah, we still might finish that before we finish exploring the Lord of the Rings. Fair enough. Um, anyway, so, yeah, season five. Uh, so we'll be discussing the arc and the stories that we're covering and laying the groundwork for that stuff on the 26th of March next Thursday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, same time as we started here tonight. So that is my second announcement. The third thing I wanted to mention is that we are um, uh, we're doing um, Signum is trying to kind of help out. Obviously, you know, I don't spend too much time talking about current events and the stuff that uh, you know you would probably rather not be thinking about right now, um, but. I know, you know, Signum, of course, is well aware of the fact, you know, we've been kind of looking around uh, and watching as everyone practically in the world is suddenly trying. You know, we, we've gone in three weeks from being this, like, sort of oddball little university operating in its totally virtual way, um, in a way that may has made us actively strange in the educational community to all of a sudden looking around and finding everybody else trying to operate just like us. And we know that this is hard for a lot of people and that many, many people are, um, uh, uh, 
many people are uh, struggling, you know, trying to teach online now, uh, you know, being charged with migrating their courses online, given almost no time to prepare that and kind of fumbling around. There are many teachers and entire schools and school districts really just kind of fumbling around not knowing what to do. This, of course, is our world and we're really comfortable with this. So one of the things that we're trying to do to help people, uh, you know, during the current crisis is to, uh, we're offering mentoring services, uh, both to individuals and to groups. So, you know, for schools, for departments, um, you know, whatever, if there's a, you know, a group of teachers or again, individuals as well. Uh, we do have to charge a little bit for this because it's, it's going to take a significant amount of the time of a significant number of our people to do this, but we're offering this at cost for as little as we can. Um, uh, this mentoring service, we call it the Signum teachers, Mentor, the Signum teacher mentorship program. Um, and uh, you can find links to that uh, on our homepage. This is just the Signum University homepage. You can see, of course, our 11 tips for teaching online that we, you know, our, our faculty kind of pooled together a bunch of suggestions of things that we've learned to try to help people. I did my session on online teaching on Monday night, which is posted to our YouTube channel, which is open to everybody. But again, we know that just general tips only take you so far, right? It's kind of nice to have somebody who is experienced with this and is comfortable with this to kind of sit down with you and say like, okay, let's talk about what it would look like to try to accomplish your teaching goals in an online environment instead of the classroom that you're comfortable in, right? Um, and so that's what we're offering in the teacher mentorship program. So if you just scroll down a little bit, um, here is our page for the Signum uh, teacher mentorship program. I encourage you to send an email if you're curious about this, if you want more information or you want to discuss maybe us coming in to work. These are, you know, short sessions. It's not a huge time commitment, just trying to, you know, help people and get some advice. Um, and uh, oh, you're right here. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate that for pointing out to me that I am uh, not yet actually sharing this screen with half my audience. Very good. There it is. Okay. Right. Signum University. Signum Teacher Mentorship Program, there we are. Um, send an email to mentor at signumu.org uh, or just click on this email us button right here and uh, we will, uh, this you know, gives you more information on the group and the individual sessions, exactly what happens. And um, you know, this is just our attempt to help people out here. So um, yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, so I just wanted to make sure everybody knows about that. Please do spread the word uh, among teachers. I've got, I've got a lot of friends, uh, you know, and friends of friends who are teachers and, and who are just really at their wits end trying to figure out what to do. And uh, we really would love to be able to help folks. Um, okay, <clears throat> so let us now go to the text uh, and talk about Morgoth's Ring. So let's first start off by remembering where we are, right? Um, so let's go back as far as The Lost Road, Volume 5 of the History of Middle-earth, right? You may remember that The Lost Road uh, was basically focused on the stuff that Tolkien was working on in the mid-30s, like 1937 especially. A lot of the material in The Lost Road uh, is from that period of time in 1937 when he was essentially preparing the Silmarillion for publication, right? And if you remember the timing on that, The Hobbit is published in September of 2000... Or 2000... In September of 1937, right? So that year... The Hobbit has been accepted for publication, and the Hobbit and the Hobbit is 
coming out, right? In the fall of 1937, The Hobbit is released in September, and it's a hit. It's really popular. Multiple printings are going out. Um, and the publisher is already clamoring uh, for more, right? Tolkien, of course, is thinking, this is the moment, right? This is the moment uh, that I've been waiting for for decades now. I've got all this stuff that I could never get, I could never interest a publisher in, but now, like, I'm popular, right? I've got a publisher who loves my stuff and wants to publish more. The time is now, right, for publishing The Silmarillion. So 1937, especially that second half of 1937, he's buckling down, right, and he's working on The Silmarillion, trying to get it ready for publication, and that's all of that stuff. You know, we got the, you know, the annals uh, of, of uh, Valinor and Beleriand, the uh, Embarcanta, the, um, uh, what do you call it, the Lamas, the, the Tree of Tongues, right, all that stuff, you know, the, 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 the revised Quenta Silmarillion from 1937, all that stuff he's trying to get together into what would have been this, you, know, you may remember at the time we were talking about, like, imagining what the Silmarillion Tolkien wanted to publish in 1937 would have looked like this massive, unbelievable thing with all of this stuff in it, right? But of course, as we discussed when we were talking then about the next volume, about Return of the Shadow, uh, it didn't happen, right? Because the publisher very politely says, gosh, this stuff is really interesting, but what we really want is another Hobbit book, right? So instead, he sort of, Tolkien, that is, um, sort of sadly puts the Silmarillion stuff aside and sits down to try to wump up a sequel to The Hobbit. Um, and that, of course, is ultimately then where The Lord of the Rings comes from. But of course, you will remember from our discussion of The Return of the Shadow, which we were just kind of recalling this last night uh, in uh, exploring The Lord of the Rings class, you know, this sort of wonderful moment of uh, discovery that we had when talking about The Return of the Shadow. Um, we saw the moment um, in, you know, not the first draft and not near the beginning of the draft, you know, when in the middle of the process of working on this sequel, which had started to take shape now, uh, he suddenly brings the walls down, right? The firewall between this new fairy, you know, this fairy tale that he was writing, you know, The Hobbit was not really part of the Silmarillion world. It was drawing heavily from the Silmarillion world, but it was all him recycling stuff from the Silmarillion world. There was not any clear consistency between the Hobbit world and the Silmarillion world. And there are, you know, lots of examples that I could give, and we've talked about this on other occasions before, and I won't go over all that stuff again. But, uh, but anyway, the Hobbit stuff was separate, right? It was, uh, it was inspired by, based upon, borrowing things shamelessly from the Silmarillion world, but it was not within the Silmarillion world. And then he has that one moment, right, when... Uh, Trotter, the Hobbit, who would someday become Strider, the Ranger, uh, says, I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio. And that's the moment when all of a sudden now the Silmarillion world and the Lord of the Rings world come together. And the Silmarillion world becomes the history of the world of the story that he's telling. And the result is... Uh, what happens next, right? Now, we're going to come back to this in a minute because we spent 
a while, right? There were many, we had many occasions in our discussion of the rest of the Return of the Shadow, of the Treason of Isengard, the War of the Ring, and the first half of Sauron defeated to observe the ways in which the bringing together of those two things, the crossover of his earlier legendarium work and his later Hobbit invention, right? When he crossed those things over, when he combined those into one big project, one big artistic undertaking in his own mind, um, that flowered tremendously, right, in the process of The Lord of the Rings and was an almost incalculable enrichment uh, to the story of The Lord of the Rings. And again, we we, we saw that at many points um, as we were looking at how The Lord of the Rings developed. Tonight, what we're going to be doing is looking at the other side of that. We're going to be looking at, okay, so we see how bringing those two worlds together affected the Lord of the Rings. How did it affect the Silmarillion? What are the consequences for the Silmarillion project in Tolkien's mind of, of that connection, right? That's what I think we begin to see here in this volume, which is to me most interesting and really exciting. Um, now, in Sauron Defeated, but, but of course, Tolkien, the development here is not completely linear. Um, and we know that there are a couple points in the writing of the Lord of the Rings, when Tolkien stalled, right? That is, when the, when the writing of the Lord of the Rings stalled out and Tolkien took a prolong, prolonged period of time, like a whole year, off from writing the Lord of the Rings and did other stuff instead, right? And in Sauron Defeated, the, primary, the bulk of Sauron Defeated, Volume 9, um, focused on some of that stuff that he produced in the middle of that. In particular, a lot of this stuff that came in during the second gap that is essentially not quite but almost between uh the um the two towers and the uh and the return of the king so we've got the in that moment and this and this is the the numenor stuff right the numenor stuff that we were looking at um the drowning of anadune the, you know, the 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 later versions of the fall of numenor um and the development of course very significantly as we were looking at in sauron in in sauron defeated um the emergence of the adunaic language right which was really important uh, a really important part of that entire process so that thing that the sort of well, one hates to use the word, the adjective final applied to the noun version in anything that Tolkien wrote, but something like the final version of the new, the final state of the Numenor myth, right, uh, kind of emerged from that interlude. And of course, we can see that influencing uh, the end of The Lord of the Rings. Um, I heard just a brilliant paper Um uh, oh no, and I'm suddenly blanking on her name. Anyone who is there and can remind me would be great. Texmoot, uh, a wonderful, wonderful paper about the influence of the fall of Numenor on the end of the Lord of the Rings. Oh man, I feel really bad. Megan? Was it Megan? Yes, it was Megan, John. I think it was. Um, yes, thank you, John. Megan Fontenot. That's her. That's her. Um, Megan Fontenot uh, gave a wonderful paper in which she was looking at. Uh, she was. She first observed that the downfall of Sauron is described three separate times. We get it three times from three different perspectives, right? We get it from Sam's point of view, right, looking out from uh, the cracks of doom, 
right? And then we get it again from the point of view of Gandalf and Aragorn, right? And on the, on the battlefield. And then we get it again from the point of view of Faramir and Eowyn. Um, and so like, why the threefold repetition of this? And then she went through and pointed out what to me was really compelling, the parallels between the description of the downfall of Sauron and the description of the destruction of Numenor. Um, and that basically her argument was, he does this three times, which is interesting and a little bit weird, but what's really interesting about, what's most interesting about it is that the thing that all three of those descriptions have in common, what, what connects them together is Numenor. And it was just awesome. It was, it was, it was an absolutely fantastic argument. Loved that. Um, looking forward to talking about those passages and exploring the Lord of the Rings someday. Um, but anyway, um, so as I say, that's you know one example I think that we can see of how um, the Numenor stuff really had an impact. You know, so again, it's it's not like he was wasting his time right when he wasn't writing the Lord of the Rings. So now, in Morgoth's ring, we turn back to the Silmarillion stuff proper, right? The 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 presentation of the Numenor stuff, you know, the Notion Club papers and the Drowning of Anadune, uh, was like a little bit of a, like, we interrupt the, uh, you know, the evolution of this legendarium to bring you this side quest, right, that Tolkien went on as a writer. Um, you know, like the invention of Adonaiic and, uh, you know, the further development of the Numenor uh, legend. Um, so... You know, that was really cool uh, and, and, and interesting, but it didn't really kind of move forward either of the overall narratives, right? You know, it's kind of a, as I said, it's kind of a side quest, kind of a side note in a sense, right? Again, we can see the relevance. Um, but here in Morgoth's Ring, we now return to the story which was interrupted by the Lord of the Rings when he had to set it aside, right, and do that sequel instead, which, of course, ended up turning into this very long period of time, right? It ended up being more than 10 years, ultimately, that he was writing and working on The Lord of the Rings. Um, but remember also that there was a gap of several years between when he finished writing The Lord of the Rings and when The Lord of the Rings was published. And so uh, what happened to the Silmarillion project? So first, I want to start with uh, acknowledging the very important editorial choice that Christopher Tolkien made here. Uh, this is going to be really important for us to keep remembering. Um, Christopher says in his foreword, thus, thus this book, Morgoth Ring, of course, and as I hope its successor, I love how he's like, you know, not going to be, uh, not going to just assume that they're going to publish the next volume, right? Um, thus this book, and as I hope its successor, attempt to document two radically distinct phases that fall, that, sorry, two radically distinct phases, that following the completion of The Lord of the Rings and that following its publication, right? So he's dividing it so that you've got that period from like 1949 to 1953 and then for after the publication, right? So like the mid to late 50s. For a number of reasons, however, I have found it more satisfactory in presentation to divide the material not according to these two phases, but by separating the narrative into two parts. So he's not going to give us in Morgoth's ring the stuff that Tolkien was working on in between 
the end of the Lord of the Rings and the publication and then give in the next volume the stuff that he worked on after the publication. He's combining those things together and he's instead presenting them almost like a two volume thing of all of that stuff put together. He's going to give us all of the early Silmarillion stuff here um, that is like up through the hiding of Valinor as he's about to explain. And then he's going to give us all the later Silmarillion stuff, the, the wars in Beleriand side later. Um, while this division is artificial, I have been able to include in this book a high proportion of all that my father wrote in the years after the Lord of the Rings was finished, both in narrative and discussion, to which must be added, of course, all the material in the volume of letters, concerning the Elder Days, before the hiding of Valinor. The next volume will contain, according to my intention, or at any rate, uh, all or at any rate more of the original texts relating to the legends of Beleriand and the War of the Jewels including the full text of the Grey Annals, and a major narrative remaining unpublished and unknown, The Wanderings of Hurin. So we have that to look forward to in The War of the Jewels, which is volume 11 of the History of Middle-earth. Um, but I just, I just wanted to make sure that we emphasize this, right? That I, that I emphasize what Christopher is doing here uh, in these two volumes, because uh, we have been focused on the history of Middle-earth as, of course, it has been its primary presentation feature, right, as a kind of historical development of Tolkien's thought over the course of time, right? Um, and so there's going to be some, so it's well to keep in mind this sort of warning here that there's going to be some deviation from that plan here. Um, part of me, of course... Well, I don't want to say grudges. That seems ungenerous. Um, part of me regrets that choice. I would sort of rather be able to, because again, to me, what I what what is kind of most interesting to me is to sort of see if, as I say, I'm my primary interest is in the overall narrative, like the the creative narrative, the narrative, the meta narrative of the story, right? What is the story of the story? Um, and so watching the story develop over time, not within the logic of its own narrative, right? First half of the story up to the hiding of Valinor and the second half after the hiding of Valinor, but rather the different stages of its development in Tolkien's mind as Tolkien's own sort of creative situation was changing and developing over time. Um, I would kind of rather have a book on here's the st here's where his mind was and the kind of thing he was doing with the Silmarillion material before the publication. And here's what it was like after as he, as Christopher says, we kind of get that a little bit, right? But we don't really fully get that. Um, and, uh, I, um, uh, and, but now look, anytime I complain, uh, about, editorial choices that Christopher's made, I feel like I need to smack myself because like, come on, like seriously, um, I'm just kind of being a brat when I do that because like, let's face it, the challenge that Christopher, you know, the different challenges that Christopher is confronting here. I mean, it's huge. And like, I'm sure if I tried to do it differently, it would suck way more than what he did. So like, whatever, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, uh, that it would be really interesting to me to see it that way. So I just, want, I, just, I just want us to keep that in mind, right? To try to keep dates in mind. Now, the stuff that we're going to be looking at today 
um, the Ainu Indole material uh, is from the earlier period. All of it is from the earlier period. So um, we don't, we're not going to encounter this situation right away, but I wanted to make sure that we keep all this in mind. Okay. So um, let's, um, let's go on and think about that crossover I was just talking about. So this is an important thing that I think too few people focus on. Some people don't know, and some people, I think, don't lay enough stress on this. Um, think about even what I just said, how I described what happened when he brought the worlds of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings together during the course of the writing of, of book one. Um, I talked about how he decided that the Silmarillion material would be the historical background of the Lord of the Rings, right? Those would be the ancient legends of that same world. Like they would be happening in the same world, but in Tolkien's mind, and this is one of the things that Christopher emphasizes, which I want to make sure we keep very firmly in mind as we go through, we'll see it, I think, reflect it in some of the text tonight. Um, is this. He says, it is very significant also, I believe, that at that time he was deeply committed to the publication of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings in conjunction or in connection as a single work, one long saga of the jewels and the rings. And the time in question is that time between like 1949 and 1953, 54, um, when he was trying to get the books, the book published. One of the reasons for the delay one of the reasons for the delay of the publication of The Lord of the Rings was that he was insisting on this, right? Tolkien tried to play hardball with his publishers, Alan and Unwin, right, who had published The Hobbit and who had requested the sequel and who, under the circumstances, had been extremely painful. I mean, when you're an author and you miss your deadline by a decade, right? I mean, you know, you ha <laughs> the publishers can be forgiven from walking away from that, right? They were still willing to publish The Lord of the Rings, despite the fact that it was a decade late, despite the fact that it was nothing like what they had asked for or expected, right? They were still interested in publishing it. But Tolkien tried to play hardball with them. Right. Um, and say all or nothing, guys, here's the Silmarillion stuff. Here's the Lord of the Rings. Either publish them both or I walk and take the stuff to another publisher. Right. And of course, he had another publisher on the line. He had this is what you know. many of you will have read or at least have heard of the very famous and very, very, very long uh, letter to Milton Waldman. Uh, that he wrote, um, which you can read much, not all, but much of uh, in the published letters. The letter to Milton Waldman, which is his like long summary and commentary upon the whole Silmarillion, essentially, um, that's a pitch letter. It's a pitch letter to another publisher who's very interested, and he is pitching the Silmarillion. He's trying to explain how this all fits together, how this is one big story, and why they should publish all of them. In the end, HarperCollins walked away. HarperCollins also said, we don't want it. Um, we're not going to, we'll publish The Lord of the Rings, but we're not going to publish it with the Silmarillion, right? So, um, he uh, ends up going back to Alan and Unwin, and Alan and Unwin 
agree to publish it, but not with the Silmarillion. So this was not, but again, so that I, I wanted to remind you, and you know, for those of you who didn't know about that story, to make sure you knew that that was happening, and it was part of that delay, part of what was going on in Tolkien's life while he was in that first period, the first of these two phases that Christopher describes. But again, I think the thing that even I have often, I think, underplayed or underemphasized, it's not just that Tolkien was trying to get a twofer, right? It's not just that he was trying to use the leverage, to use the book that the publisher wanted as leverage to get the book that he wanted published, right? I, there is definitely an element of that. I'm not trying to deny that. Um, but it wasn't just that. What it was also was that in his mind, these are one long saga of the jewels and the rings. That in his mind at this time, um, this had gone way past the firewall coming down. This had gone, uh, the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, in Tolkien's mind, in Tolkien's mind, they didn't just move in together, right? We're not only talking about the cohabitation of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings in one subcreated world, right? They had been married intricately in his mind. Um, this inevitably has consequences for his work on the Silmarillion, right? The kind of downside of this is that he could no longer just, you know, blow the dust off of all of that old manuscript that he had from 1937, what he had been assiduously putting together and preparing for publication and say, like, hey, I still got this in this drawer right here, right? Because it had changed, right? That's what happens when you get married. Um, so, uh... Christopher says, how did he see two works of such different tone being published together? Well, Christopher, that's what the, that's what the publishers were wondering, too. I mean, it's hard, honest. I mean, I love the Silmarillion, but it's hard not to side with the publishers here, right? Um, I, in retrospect, it's amazing enough that the Lord of the Rings got published. And, you know, I've often played this game, right, uh, where if you ask yourself, like, what would a modern publisher do if somebody submitted a manuscript like The Lord of the Rings, right? Holy cow. Um, it's like a miracle that The Lord of the Rings was published in any case, right? But to imagine trying to sell to the public not only The Lord of the Rings, but the kind of the thing that he wanted to sell, right? That, that like, as if The Lord of the Rings weren't big and strange enough in its own way, um, to take not just the Silmarillion volume that we finally get from Christopher in 77, but like the thing that Tolkien was trying to put out in 1937 added to the Lord of the Rings. I mean, that thing would have been like 2000 pages. It would have been, uh, just incredible. I mean, I, I can't, I literally can't imagine. Um, Robbie says it was intended to be published in one volume. I don't know that he was necessarily insisting on one volume. I mean, again, again, of course, Robbie, as you know, in the end, they couldn't even publish The Lord of the Rings in one volume. Um, but I, I'm not necessarily sure that he was insisting on, like, one ginormous tome uh, of all of the material together. But, like, how would you even do it? How would you even split it up? It's just, it's, it is, I have to say, it has, it's, 
very difficult for me to imagine. Just again, I, no matter how much I love the stuff, I absolutely cannot um, imagine any publisher. So I, I can't criticize the publisher. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it's yeah, yeah. It's um, oh, and Sarah absolutely. Sarah's asking, is it the length of the content that would have been problematic? B- both much in every way <laughs> i mean holy cow yeah like it's just yeah i mean the length i mean you're right like the 2000 pages that's the least of the problems in a sense right uh whoo yeah wow anyway just just incredible um so yeah yeah um well let's 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 keep going and seeing what we see here. So here we can begin. This is still in the foreword, of course. We can see Christopher discussing um, some of the things that happened, right? Again, what were the consequences? We talked about the consequences for the Lord of the Rings of the marriage of the two. Um, But how did the Silmarillion change? Christopher says, it seems not to have been until the end of the 50s that he turned again seriously to the Silmarillion narrative, for which there was now an insistent demand. Pause. End of the 50s. End of the 50s. It's not until a decade, another decade, has passed after he finishes writing The Lord of the Rings that he really turns back again to the Silmarillion narrative, the full Silmarillion narrative. That's amazing. Right. And also note that that means that it's been 20 years now, that time when he was preparing the Silmarillion for publication, that dusty manuscript he's still got sitting in his drawer, right, is 20 years old. Just pause for a second and imagine what you were doing 20 years ago. Right. Imagine what you were writing 20 years ago. Um, That by itself is incredible. Right. But there's much more to it than that. Again, the Silmarillion hasn't just been sitting there in stasis for 20 years. It got married to the Lord of the Rings in the meantime, right? Christopher says, but it was too late. As will be seen in the latter part of this book, much had changed since, and as I incline to think in direct relation to, the publication of the Lord of the Rings and its immediate aftermath. Meditating long on the world that he had brought into being and was now in part unveiled, he had become absorbed in analytic speculation concerning its underlying postulates. Before he could prepare a new and final Silmarillion, he must satisfy the requirements of a coherent theological and metaphysical system, rendered now more complex in its presentation by the supposition of obscure and conflicting elements in its roots and tradition. Okay. Um, Keep in mind, and this is another way in which I think a lot of people are really unfair to Tolkien, right? A lot of people say, well, surely after The Lord of the Rings was published and became really popular, he must have, like, we know he really wanted to, you know, like when I say, oh, it was, you know, one of his dearest dreams to see the Silmarillion published, a lot of people are like, well, why didn't he? Right? Like, what what kept him? I mean, it's, it's 20 years 
from when he publishes The Lord of the Rings until he dies. He had 20 years to work on The Silmarillion. Surely. I mean, he hadn't been working on it. He'd barely, like, the 20-year period, that's like the entire time from when he first sat down and, and started writing the very first of The Lost Tales until 1937, right, when he was preparing it for publication there when The Hobbit was coming out. Like, that whole time period and the way that we saw the story developing there from between Volume 1 and Volume 5 of the history of Middle-earth, that was 20 years, right? He's got another whole period, like, of that entire scope. Why couldn't he get it done, right? Why couldn't he get it done? And one of the things that Christopher points out is sort of the, the extenuating circumstances, right? That is the way in which he got absorbed in not just the the sort of publication drama that I was describing earlier, but also the aftermath of the publication, right? It wasn't so easy to just put the Lord of the Rings aside and move on from it. Um, and think about all that stuff in Unfinished Tales, right? So, you know, he says here that it wasn't until the end of the 50s that he turned again seriously to the Silmarillion narrative. Why so long? Why wait uh, for like uh, a, a whole 10 years after he finished writing? Even you know, five years after he published The Lord of the Rings, what was he doing for that five years? Answer, writing the Unfinished tale stuff. Answering people's questions, filling out, continuing the sub-creative process of the Third Age of Middle-earth, right? So just think of all that material. Essays on the Astari and the Palantiri, the, uh, the, the, the Gladden Field stuff, the Hunt for the Ring stuff, the Galadriel and Celeborn stuff, all that stuff. Um, all that stuff basically comes from this period, right? Um, uh, so he was busy, right? He was occupied uh, in the Lord of the Rings world. So he didn't, the Lord of the Rings didn't let him go necessarily as soon as it was published, uh, sort of the contrary. But more than that, the two of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings had gotten married, and marriage changes people, you know. Um, think about that. Think about what Christopher says here. Before he could prepare a new and final Silmarillion, he must satisfy the requirements of a coherent theological and metaphysical system. Why? Why? Why do you think? Why is he having all these hang-ups all of a sudden? He didn't worry about that before so much. Why was he suddenly worrying about a theological and metaphysical internal consistency now that he wasn't worried about before? Why do you think? Robbie, I have to think he looked back at revising the Silmarillion with a great deal of dread, uh, knowing that the the marriage had changed it a lot in his mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but it's the nature of that change that I especially want to focus on here. Think back to the Book of Lost Tales, and even after the Book of Lost Tales, think back to the Quentin Olderinwa um, and the Quintus. So remember the early 30s stuff? This is the material from Shaping of Middle-Earth and the Lost Road. Uh, if you remember our discussions of those like four years ago now, four or five years ago, um, uh, maybe some of you have binged it more recently. I don't know. Um, but 
think back to that early Silmarillion material, right? Um, think about the kind of narrative it is. And you can still hear this. You can still kind of feel this in the published Silmarillion. Um, yeah, Marie, you're right that the world presented in The Lord of the Rings is different than the world presented in the Silmarillion. And not only that, um, I would say it has to do with the the whole concept, the whole literary frame. The Lord of the Rings is a different kind of literary undertaking. Think of the difference in narrative, right? Think of think of a chapter in the Silmarillion. Um, some of them would be bad examples. I don't mean even like a, a Balerion and its realms is too extreme an example of Turin Turambar is a bad example in the other direction. Think of a chapter like um, of the darkening of Valinor or, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, like the description of the kinslaying, right? Think about those chapters. Good, Marie. The chapter on, on the near Nath Arnoidiad. Yeah. Think about that chapter. And think about any chapter of the Lord of the Rings, right? Actually, Marie, that's a wonderful, a wonderful example. The near Nath Arnoidiad. Take the chapter on the near Nath Arnoidiad and put it next to the chapter on the Battle of Helm's Deep or the chapter on the Battle of Pelennor Field, right? Think about the differences between those things. Um, yeah, Kit, exactly. The genres are completely different. Now, that might sound like a really English professor kind of thing to say, right? Like, who cares about genre? Genre is a kind of thing that English teachers talk about. It's a different kind of story. It's a totally different creative undertaking, right? The Lord of the Rings is not exactly a novel, but it is a heroic romance, technically. But um, it is attempting a kind of psychological and narrative realism, um, the kind of experience that it provides, right? It is a consistent narrative told from the point of view of people there on the ground. We almost never get narrative of that kind in the Silmarillion. It just isn't told that way. It's a different kind of story. And if we think back even further, right, think back to the legend of the, uh, you know, think back to the story of the making of the sun and the moon, right? Especially think back to the making of the sun and the moon as it was in the Book of Lost Tales, right? Remember that delightful story about the flower of Telperion and how they accidentally dropped it, right? And it got bruised and that explains why there are dark spots in the moon, right? Remember that kind of thing, right? Um, that's, that kind of story is a completely, it's, it, it's, it's in a totally different world. It is attempting something completely different. You don't need the kind of internal consistency. There are a lot of questions that you just don't have to answer when you're telling a story at the kind of mythic and 
epitomizing, to use Christopher Tolkien's word, level that the Silmarillion was doing, right? Are there theological questions? Yeah, absolutely. Are there uncertainties? Like, are, does the story give you answers? No, it doesn't give you answers most of the time. But you know what? It's okay. It's not a big deal in the Silmarillion, right? In the Lord of the Rings, you can't, you can't do that. It has to work. The experience that we as readers are brought into in the Lord of the Rings is that we are brought alongside the characters of that story, right? We are asked to invest secondary belief in the world of the Lord of the Rings on a totally different level than we are in the earlier Silmarillion material, especially the really early Silmarillion material. Remember how much of the early Silmarillion, like the Book of Lost Tales stuff, remember how much of that was what I called myth of explanation, right? You know, like things that answer questions like, Mommy, why do dogs and cats not get along with each other? Ah, child, let me tell you the story of Huan and Tevildo, right? And that will explain to you why dogs and cats don't get along, right? Why, you know, Mommy, why are there dark spots on the moon? Ah, let me tell you the story of how they accidentally dropped the flower of Telperion, and that will explain to you why there are... But, you know, Mommy, why does Ireland exist, right? So, I mean, these are all the kinds that you remember how often... That happened um, in uh, uh, in the history of, you know, in, in the older stuff, especially in the Book of Lost Tales. But you can still see it uh, in the the stuff from the 30s, in the, the Quentin Elder Inwa and the 1937 Quentin Silmarillion. Um, th- when you're telling stories like that, this, there are there are it. The experience of reading a myth of that kind, a myth on that level, that is just miles and miles and miles away from imagining yourself in that world. And like, what would happen if, what does it mean if, what are the implications of this for those other things? The kind of uh, forcing together... um, the kind of forcing together of of consequences, right? And seeing how these things all work together. This is um, uh, what the kind of, the, the, the genre of story, the kind of storytelling that he was doing in The Lord of the Rings demands, right? The kind of, I don't want to say, disembodied is, is a bad metaphor, but I, I, what I'm tempted to say is the kind of disembodied myth Right of the earlier Silmarillion stuff, the, these stories that could just kind of float free, and yes, they raise theological and metaphysical questions, but there's no compulsion to answer them, right? There's no compulsion to answer them, um, but in the Lord of the Rings, there is, right? You know, because you've got characters asking uncomfortable questions, right? Like Sam on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, saying, um, we're running out of food. Well, maybe we can get food in Mordor. That's if orcs eat and drink, right? Or do they just live on foul air and poison? Well, now we've got to answer that question, right? We've got to stop and think about where do orcs come from, right? And when Tolkien, when face, when forced to confront, um, uh, 
when forced to confront the uh hi, oh, oh hang on a second i'm uh having a small hardware issue here no problem just working through that here blah 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 um anyway so when he when he is forced to uh confront those issues um in the Lord of the Rings, he has to make some decisions, right? The decision that he makes in that moment that I just talked about with Sam and the um, uh, and the orcs and whether or not they eat, that has massive implications for everything. Like you've got to follow the thread there. You've got to make it work consistently. That's what he had committed himself to in the kind of narrative that he was writing in the Lord of the Rings. That's the cost of the marriage, right? Between the so so now when he's go when he goes back to the Silmarillion, leaving that stuff, leaving that stuff unanswered, right? Um. Uh, it's no longer really an option, and not in his own mind. Doesn't mean he has to explain everything in the story, right? But it has to work. It has to be made to work in a new way. Oh, and P.S. There's another thing, of course, that he did, right? Part of the frame that he chose for the Lord of the Rings was that it's our world, right? When he was telling, and now the Silmarillion was always connected to our world. So that actually, in some ways, I think is a thing that gets imported to the Lord of the Rings. If anything, I think that works the other way around. That is the whole idea that the Lord of the Rings is from the prehistory of our world. I think that's a, um, that's something that the Silmarillion brought to the marriage, I think. Um, but anyway, when you can no longer leave these questions up in the air, you're now forced to confront things like science, <laughs> right? Um, and now he's kind of looking back at those fun old flat earth uh, myths, right? Uh, and the making of the world round and all that. And he's now like, oof, um, wow, okay, I can't do that anymore. Can I do that anymore? You know? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Christopher says, why? Why not simply present the Elder Days as mythology that might not be consistent with the experience of Third Age people? Two things there, Christopher. Number one, because Tolkien, right? Uh, notice Christopher doesn't say that he got caught up in writing the explanations. He got caught up in, uh, what's his phrase? Um, analytic speculation concerning its underlying postulates, right? He had to think it through. Part of it is just who he is. He needed answers. He had never needed these answers before. He needs them now. He feels he can't go on without them. He can't go back and pres- without knowing the answers. So part of that, Christopher, I think is just who he is, right? But Christopher, there's another problem, right? If the myths, as they are told, were just human myths, and so any way in which they did not fit with reality could be chalked up to ignorance, that would have been an easier out. But from the beginning, the essential, like literally the very first concept, what the whole 
origin and root of the Legendarium was from the very beginning, these are the Elvish stories. These are the authentic stories brought from Elven home back to world by Ariel Althwina. This is the version of history. From, this is the true, unrevealed, hitherto story of the Elves, which they got in part from the Valar themselves, so it can't be explained that way. You can't say, well, they just didn't know what they were talking about. If they didn't, who does? Right? I mean, the Valar were supposed to... I mean, what were the Valar laughing up their sleeves? Is this one vast practical joke by the Valar against the Eldar? Right? That's not a super satisfying frame. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it was Tolkis. Yeah, no, that I could get, Christopher. Yeah. Um, there are. I'm not saying there are none of the Valar that I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> that I feel I can see doing this, I, you know, it could totally, it could totally work. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and so first of all, let me apologize. You guys are, um, making lots of really, really awesome comments, but I'd emphasize the lots. I see one of you who I think is new, uh, uh, Jorge, um, was asking how you participate. You're doing it, man. I'm just, I'm sorry if I'm not reading your comments because I'm getting like uh, 30 every 10 seconds over here. Uh, so anyway, it's fine. I'm not trying to discourage you from commenting. That's just my apology if I don't read your comment because, or if I don't read it loud. I mean, because uh, it's um, it's a lot. Anyway, so, okay. Uh, um, yeah, no, no, again, please, no, no, some of you are apologizing now. Don't apologize. Don't apologize. I want you to keep, keep commenting. Just, just, just be understanding when I can't comment on all of them. Anyway, okay. So, um, all right. Uh, when we, when you think about this from this, when you, so, so th to me, this is the number one cost, right? This is the thing that affects this, that will affect this. If, if there is a single answer. Like if there's a one sentence answer to the question, why doesn't Tolkien ever finish the Silmarillion? That this is my nominee, my nominee for the answer, the simple answer, the simplest possible answer to that question, is because he couldn't make it work. He he would have had. It's not just about revising. It's not just about reworking. It's about the wholesale reconception. He's got to redo it all in this new wholly new mode to make it work. Um, if it's going to be living faithfully within its new marriage, right? With the Lord of the Rings. And the fact is it doesn't all work. It, it's not just that it would be long. It's just not, not just that it's daunting. It's impossible. It can't happen. There's a lot of the early stuff that is just frankly impossibly inconsistent with this later stuff. Some of this we know, right? Where do orcs come from? There is no good answer to that question. There is no good answer that works in all ways satisfyingly. It's just, it's an illustration. It's not just a loose end that Tolkien never fully tied up. It doesn't, it's, he, there's so much that he, he so much that he would have had to abandon and he didn't want to. And we'll get back to that see some more of that uh, happening um, later on. Tonight. He's hoping. 
you're going to be teasing me because I'm like, we're going to rip through 45 pages tonight and we're still on like slide three. Uh, but uh, I'm going to speed up after we get this. Oh, I want tonight's first session. We had to do, we had to set the stage and talk about these fundamental issues. Right. Um, uh, I know we're still on the forward, Yana. I know, I know we are. We're, we're getting there. You'll see how fast we're going to go after this. Okay. Let's get to the I know in the way. And let's, so all of these things are, I wanted to just make sure that we're being fair to the project that Tolkien is facing. Right. Um, and that we are under we're trying to wrap our minds around sort of where Tolkien was as a narrative author, as a creative artist in this time period. Right. As he's returning to the Silmarillion project. Um, now let's look at some of the things that he was actually doing during these times. Uh, and I think we'll be able to see uh, some of the bigger picture emerging. Um, so I know stuff. Here's the summary of uh how the Ainuindale developed during this period. Now, keep in mind, the dates on this are during the writing of the Lord of the Rings. He was he re he does a draft, a new draft of the Ainuindale in 1946. That is during the gap, and the same gap in which he's writing um, the drowning, the Notion Club Papers, and the Drowning of Anadune. Right during that pre-Return of the King. Um, hiatus from the Lord of the Rings. He also does the Ainuindale here, right? So it's not just a Numenor sabbatical that he's taking, right? He is also already beginning, even before the Lord of the Rings is done. Um, uh, he's, uh, <laughs> you guys are awful. You guys are teasing me outrageously about my claims of speeding up. Karita's like, buckle up, kids. It's zero to 60 any minute now. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Jorge, absolutely. He gets caught. He gets very caught up in the philosophical questions. And as you point out, some of this is going to bear real fruit. The Athrobeth, uh, as you as you point out, Jorge, that does definitely emerge from some of this, uh, these philosophical issues, right, that he's working through. Um, so some of it, I think, is really uh, is really um, uh fruitful. Okay. So here's what, here's how the Ainuindale thing works. So Ainuindale A is the very first uh, music of the Ainur. That's the Book of Lost Tales version. Ainuindale B, a manuscript of the 1930s. So this is from the, like that period in the 30s when he was beginning to put the Silmarillion into what at the time he felt, hoped would be its publication form. Um, when lending this to Catherine Ferrer in 1948, he wrote on it, Flat World Version. The story of the lending of the narrative to Catherine Ferrer. Uh, and boy, talk about unsung people who played a major role in Tolkien's life, right? Um, the evidence that Christopher pr uh, presents in this chapter suggests, and I'm not, I don't want to give it more weight than it deserves, but it kind of sounds like the feedback he got from Catherine Ferrer in 1948 had a massive impact uh, on the future development uh, of the Silmarillion. Who was she? Wife of a friend? Wife of a colleague? Nancy? Um, oh, it's it's pronounced George. Sorry, Portuguese, not Spanish. Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, didn't, I, was, I was guessing because of the J. Sorry. Um, uh, great. Okay. Um, right. So... Uh, he calls the old version, the version we've already read before in The Lost Road, the flat world version. 
a new version lost apart from a single torn sheet written in 1946. So he, 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 he does a revised version in 40s. It's been 15 years, right? Since he wrote that, you know, 10 to 15 years. So he writes out a new version, um, sloppily, right? But he writes out a new version and then does a typescript, right? Uh, he, 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 cause that, that scrawl is really, really hard to read even for him. So he makes a typescript to send to Catherine Ferrer. Right. This is what uh, Christopher calls Ainulindale C star, right? Based on that written text. So he's got the old version, the B version, what Christopher calls the B version, the flat world version, and then he's written up this much newer round world version, right? That he uh, sends to Catherine. So he sends them both to Catherine Ferrer. And then Ainulindale C, made after the return of the texts by covering the old B manuscript with new writing and removing certain radically innovative elements presented in C. It would in this way be entirely explicable, says Christopher, how it came about that the typescript C star preceded the complicated and confusing revision C on the old manuscript, this being the precursor of the, la- or of the last version of the work that my father wrote, Ainulindale D, made in all probability not long after C. And Ainulindale D is essentially the p- version that's in the published Silmarillion. Ainulindale C star was thus an experiment, conceived and composed, as it appears, before the writing of The Return of the King, and certainly before The Lord of the Rings was finished. It was set aside, but as will appear later in this book, it was by no means entirely forgotten. So, you see what already begins to emerge here, right? Ainulindale B, the old version, the old flat earth version, he comes back to this in the mid-40s. Not even done with the Lord of the Rings, right? But the marriage has already happened. So, uh, you know, the, the marriage has been solemnized, even though, you know, they've not gone out into the world together yet. Um, but um, uh, he sits down now again, like, again, 10 years later and says, okay... Flat world version won't do, right? I can't make that work. I can't, I, can't, I can't do that kind of thing anymore, right? I can't just do these sort of whimsical mythic ideas that are so disconnected from it. I've, I've got to make it all work, right? I've got to make it all work not only with itself, right? I've got to make it internally, philosophically, theologically, uh, cons- as well as narratively consistent, psychologically consistent, and I've got to make it makes sense in the context of the real world, in the context of like psychological, realistic psychological experience of our world. Okay, so I'm going to write a round world version. I'm going to try, so this seems to be something like his first foray into the kind of revision he would have to do. Not just reconciling details and stuff like that, but totally reconceiving the older narrative in order to make it work in the context of the new narrative. Okay. Um, Catherine Ferrer doesn't like the round world version. She likes the flat world version better. To which I say, thank you, Catherine Ferrer, wherever you are. Thank you, Catherine Ferrer. Um, imagine what might have happened if he had received um, encouragement 
for the round world version, right? If these first forays into this like overhauling and reconciliation of this had been well received and he had begun enthusiastically the process of radically shifting it over, um, things would have uh, been very different, right? The Silmarillion, my goodness, we might have gotten the Silmarillion, but what on earth would the Silmarillion have looked like, right? Um, Wow. Uh, It's, um, yeah, exactly, Marianne. No straight road, possibly no two trees, right? Uh, Now, keep in mind, we just did Sauron Defeated. Well, I say just. A year ago, we just did Sauron Defeated, right? Um, And... Mary, as you point out, no straight road, right? Except the straight road and the making of the world round was like the central premise of the drowning of Anadune and the Notion Club paper stuff. Like that was all over that. Like that was the central conceit of that whole impulse, that entire story. So we already have evidence from the fact that he's doing this experimentation with a round world version at the same time that he's writing the Notion Club papers and the drowning of Anadune. Um, we already have evidence that like his own, I mean, again, my conclusion, I should say, uh, is that his own secret like artist's heart does not want to let them go. Right. Um, those ideas are still inspiring him very powerfully in all of that Numenor material, right? Um, We see all of those things, right, uh, still happening. And yet, while he's writing that stuff, while he's writing uh, the Notion Club paper material, he's also imagining a world in which they don't happen, essentially, right? In which the world is round from day one. Um, Yeah, exactly, George. We would have lost the trees. We would have... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to pretend, and Josiah, you're absolutely right. Josiah's wanting to play devil's advocate and says, I actually like many of the new ideas that come with the round world version. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not saying it's all bad and I'm not saying that like, you know, the Silmarillion version we would have got. I'm not saying it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry, my my apologies for this, but it's the only, it's the image I, I'm thinking of in my head. I'm imagining, um, remember at the end of The Magician's Nephew in Narnia when uh, Diggory is told, when Aslan does what he says he doesn't do and tell Diggory what would have happened, right? Uh, if he had taken the apple for himself and brought it back home, uh, instead of delivering it to Aslan and fed it to his mom, how uh, things it would have worked and things would have like sort of worked out like he would have wanted, but everything would have been horrible, right? So it like <laughs> I have in my head here this image of the like we would have gotten the published Silmarillion, but it would have been like you know with all of its soul sucked out of it and everything. Um, but um, anyway, uh, it's. I'm not saying it would necessarily have been like that. That's almost certainly an over-exaggeration. And Josiah, you are absolutely correct. There is no question that good came of it, right? Um, But um, anyway, uh, we will uh, see some more things as we go. But 
I certainly, as I say, personally strongly agree with Catherine Ferrer. And you can see he did too. Um, in response to her letter, he drops, essentially drops the experiment, the Sea Star experiment, and goes back and literally writes on the manuscript, right? Writes the, uh, you know, sets the TypeScript, the nice new TypeScript he's made aside and goes back literally to the manuscript of B and starts scribbling on it and just says, says okay, instead of that, let me let me brush this up, right? Let me just make some changes uh, to uh, the B text using some of the stuff that he had done in rewriting uh, on the on the, the TypeScript. Um, but he goes back to the flat word version and sort of adheres to that. Um, uh, the, the effort was good to have been yet remained evil, Matt. Yeah, though David is wondering if maybe it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Who knows? Perhaps so. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, Stephen Cover was also thinking of the and yet remain evil uh, <laughs> parallel there. Um yeah, yeah. Um, Yana asks, do I think he realized how far-reaching the consequences would have been? Yes, no, I do think that. And that's, I think, exactly why he spent much of the rest of the last 20 years of his life in this kind of stalemate, right? That several different impulses that he had were in conflict with each other, right? He knows you know, I was just saying there are elements in the earlier story that just that really just can't be reconciled. That can't, you would have to lose them. At meaning, you'd have to. There's fundamental elements you'd have to completely rewrite in the whole story. You'd have to be willing to part with some of these things in order to make the kind of Silmarillion, you know, to make the. Uh, you know, the spouse of the Lord of the Rings uh, in its full form, right, that he wanted to to, to, to bring about. Um, but he wasn't willing to... Do, I mean, so he, he saw the conflict, right? And I think that he ultimately spent a lot of that time kind of paralyzed there. Um, yeah. And Stephen asks, how much of it was him picking up Bilbo's habit of writing less and just sitting and thinking more? Uh, quite possibly, Stephen, quite possibly. But Stephen, was it you who earlier on in the class said, um, uh, I've also heard rumors that being older does things to you <laughs> as well? <laughs> and and I've, I've heard rumors about that, too. Uh, you know, that may, maybe there are other reasons to think that the 20 year period between 1917 and 1937 might not have been like, you know, that the time between, you know, 1953 and 1973 might not have been exactly the same experience for him as his creative work between 1917 and 1937. Um, <laughs> James says, smile when I say that young and. I know, I know, but still, I, again, I'm, I'm just, I, 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 I've heard rumors. I've heard rumors that uh, that it can happen. Um, okay, let's keep going. This is me speeding up. Ready? Some selections. This is from the C text. So this is from the revised Flat World version, the post Catherine Ferrer's intervention version. Never since have the Ainur made any music like to this music, though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before Iluvatar by the choirs of the Ainur and the children of Iluvatar after the end of days. 
Then shall the themes of Iluvatar be played aright, and take being in the moment of their utterance. For all shall then understand his intent in their part, and shall know the comprehension of each, and Iluvatar shall give to their thoughts the secret fire, being well pleased. I wanted to point out this passage because this, I think, is one of those places in which we can see the positive fruit of the analytical speculations that he was doing at this time. Um, those of you who are at Texmoot will remember. Um, oh, sorry, it's hard for me not to think back to recent regional moots without a tinge of sadness that we've been prevented having regional moots. Um, uh, regional moots will live again. But um, those of you who are at Texmoot will remember that last discussion that we had that I led on the apocalypse of Tolkien. Um, I read aloud a passage from The Shaping of Middle-Earth. It's the bit at the end of the Quentin Olderinwa. So not the 1937 version, but the 1933 version, the first time he sort of wrote the Quenta out in full kind of Quenta form. Um, and um, uh, what I'm talking about is the bit at the end when he talks about the end of the world and the Dagor Dagoroth and the return of Melkor and how Turin Turambar is going to kill him with his black sword. Remember, you remember that? We were reading that passage. Um, one of the things that I was emphasizing, one of the things that I find really striking about that is there is a philosophical and theological simplicity um, in what is talked about there. Now it is couched, Maria, exactly as you say, um, as a prophecy, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's a, it is said among the Eldar thing, right? It's not, um, we're not told this authoritatively as it were. Um, but anyway, when you read that, what you find is that um, it. It's really simple. Remember when Sam wakes up at the field of Cormallon and says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Um, well, according to the prophecy of the Dagor Dagoroth, yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. The vision of the sort of the, the that final revelation, that apocalypse of what the end of the world is going to look like, which is the only time Tolkien ever did that kind of thing uh, in his legendarium. Um, the apocalypse, the, the revelation that we get there is it's entirely a do over. Um, the Silmarils are going to be brought back together and they're going to be returned to Feanor and Feanor will bear them to Yavanna and the Silmarils will be broken and the trees will come back. And so like, and it, again, like everything's going to be, everything's going to be happy again. Everything's going to be going to go back and get done over. Right now, Stephen, I'm not saying that Sam was foreseeing that kind of apocalypse. What I'm saying is of course, like that brief thought that expression by when Sam says, is everything sad going to come untrue? I take as an expression by Sam, not quite of disbelief, but of that feeling he's ha he seems to be having a kind of disconnected experience, right? Like that doesn't happen, right? Just sad things coming untrue is not how the world works, right? So that experience that Sam is having, it's, it's like he's like, have the rules of the world suddenly changed? Right. 
am I in this alternate universe uh, where this happens? Um, uh, but that was the world. That was where the world ended, right? Um, yeah, Jennifer, it's like the restoration of Eden. Um, and Matt, exactly. It is, it is Arda unmarred. It's not the healing of Arda, and it's certainly not a new heaven and new earth. It's just a restoration of the old. I say just. But again, there's, there's a kind of simplicity to that. Again, when, when Sam has that like brief sort of disembodied experience, like the rules of the universe have changed and now, you know, sad things are, are not, we're not going to grow from them and, and say, you know, David, like uh, uh, Parrish and Niggle might have said, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. No, we're just going to hit, we're just going to undo everything, right? Um, everything that was sad is going to get reversed and going to be made happy in retrospect, you know, like, uh, uh, going back again. Um, uh, that was the apocalyptic vision in 1933. And that, I think, is exactly the kind of thing that when, after the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion get married... I'm trying to resist extending that metaphor. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it's like the Silmarillion. The Silmarillion is married now, right? The Silmarillion has, has lost its virginity. The Silmarillion is becoming a new grown-up person now in a way that it had a childlike innocence before. And that the thing that was childlike about it was, I'm sorry, sorry if you don't like the metaphor, uh, but I couldn't resist it any longer. Um, that is, it had, it had, the marriage brings the Silmarillion into contact with the real world in a way in which it had, and it seems weird to say, doesn't it? Like, you look at the Silmarillion, even in its earlier versions, and be like, are we saying the Silmarillion is in contact with grief, is not in contact with grief and suffering? You know, like, it was it was innocent and naive of, of bad things happening? No, obviously, I'm not saying anything like that. But, um, but on this other level, do you see what I mean? Um, that it could be allowed to sort of sit in its sort of isolated little world. Um, you could, it was a world in which you could imagine hitting redo at the end, right? Now, he can't, what do we get now? Now, we get the choirs of the Ainur and the children of Iluvatar after the end of days. Then shall the themes of Iluvatar be played aright and take being in the moment of their utterance for all shall then understand his intent in their part and shall know the... Con- the comprehension of each and Iluvatar shall give to their thoughts the secret fire being well pleased. It's still a redo, but it's a very different kind of redo, right? This is not just an undoing. This is not just an unmarring, right? This is, um, thinking through it in new ways. And of course, those of you who know your New Testament, 
will immediately see that in thinking it through differently, more concretely, one of the other consequences is exactly Mary in describing Arda remade rather than unmarred, right? Um, he also is coming much closer not only uh, to Christian concepts, but even to Christian, to New Testament language. Um, for all shall then understand his intent in their part, for then we shall not see, th you know, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Um, the, 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 the old version, the Arda remade, was not, it was not consistent with Christian ideas um, in one way, right? Brian, this feels a lot more like, um, uh, like Revelation. Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. Um, anyway, so as I say, I do think that there are some, and I, I, I've always loved this passage. I find this passage very, very beautiful. And I do think this is a, this is, this seems to me a much richer concept, um, a much fuller concept than uh, the one that we got in the old, old version, the Revelation uh, from earlier on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Christopher, yes, not to mention being well-pleased. Yes, that's very Genesis 1, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we get some other gleams that come through, right? Even in the C text, where, which is, remember, this is the revised flat word world version, so he's not doing his full round world experiment anymore, but notice what happens here. By the way, uh, some of what this is going to be, uh, and this is going to come up a lot in discussing Morgoth's ring, your detailed recall of the text of the Silmarillion will be put to the test, and there will be a lot of passages like the one uh, I'm about to... Um, uh, the 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 one I'm about to read, where the game is going to be, can you spot the bit that is not in the published text, right? Can you spot the bit that's different and stands out? In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of Iluvatar shook and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, Iluvatar arose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands, and in one chord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, more glorious than the sun, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. Which of these things is not like the other? Yeah, exactly. Mary and Marie. Um, the sun and Stephen. Absolutely. The sun. Now, so what? What are the implications of that? More glorious than the sun? What are the, what are the implications of that... Um, of that addition. There's a sun, Karina. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, good, Rhiannon. Yeah, it, it does suggest that the sun is the most glorious thing in Arda, not the trees, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about the way that it emerges in the published text, the sun. The sun isn't even second best. The sun is third best, right? Lamps, trees, sun. 
right, in a sense, right? Um, absolutely. Yes, the sun is a standard for glory, Stephen. That's a really good way of saying that, right? Um, so this isn't even just about the chronology, necessarily. Because note something here. We have to be careful. This doesn't make any chronological claims. Does this say that the sun existed first? Doesn't say that the sun existed first, right? I mean, heck, for the matter of that, the firmament didn't exist either, but that still makes the published text, right? No, this is just the language, uh, like the similes that are being used by the teller of the Ainoindale in order to convey, right? Um, this is the description of that final chord in the music of the Ainur. And we're trying, we, whoever we is, right? The speaker, the author of this passage is trying to explain, to give us some idea of the nature and power of that chord, right? So it compares it to the glory of the sun. Sure, why not? That doesn't chronologically say that it came first. Um, Yeah, but it does still have some pretty serious implications, right? Marie, I agree. More glorious than the sun means the sun is very glorious, but any elf would say more glorious than the light of the trees. You'd think they would. Absolutely, you'd think they would. Um, the fact that the sun is being reached for as a simile here is interesting, right? Um but of course, another thing that we have to remember. Okay. Sorry, I'm making my I'm about to disagree with Christopher face, <laughs> which is a face I know you guys have seen before during the history of Middle Earth discussions. Christopher talks about the things that he thinks are the most important differences between these earlier versions and the final published version of the Ainu Indale, or between these versions and the earlier versions of the Ainu Indale. Um, I think he undersells one really, really importantly. Um, and we'll get to that. I'll move on. I'm, I promise I'm not going to leave that point behind. We're going to come back to it. We'll see that in just a minute. Um, but just... The use of the sun here points to this other thing I haven't told you yet, um, but it also does suggest we can still see some of these reconceptions, not thinking of the sun in its second place or third place, you know, its second rank or third rank uh, uh, status in glory, um, but using that puts uh, suggests that we're already beginning to rethink things in some, uh, uh, the whole, the, the basic sort of, fabric of the myths in, in, in a certain way. Here's what I'm talking about. Any of you do a big old double take when you got to this passage? And many other things Iluvatar spoke to the Ainur at that time, and because of their memory of his words, and the knowledge that each has of the music which he himself made, the Ainur know much of what was, and is, and is to come, and few things are unseen by them. Yet some things there are that they cannot see, neither alone nor taking counsel together, as thou shalt hear, Alfwina. 
For to none but himself has Iluvatar revealed all that he has in store, and in every age there come forth things that are new and have no foretelling, for they do not spring from the past. Nancy says, Alfwina, she missed that guy. Yeah, okay. Um, Alfwina? As thou shalt hear, Alfwina? Holy cow. I'm not sure I can even explain. I would have to do a lot more thinking uh, and working through this, even to try to articulate successfully. I don't think I'm going to be successful at, at it now. How important, how much of a change it is for me reading it to have the frame visible to imagine a speaker and, more importantly, an audience for the Aino Lindaway. This passage is almost exactly the same as the published text, right? There's, this passage is almost directly out of the published text. What, what don't we have in the published text? As thou shalt hear Alfwina. Christopher completely removed the frame elements from the Aino Lindaway in the published text. That. Now, again, I'm not just trying to say that Christopher did a crappy job uh, and that he was wrong to do this. There were reasons that he did this, and and I, I think that... I'm not saying his reasons were bad, but I am saying it's a massive difference. Massive, massive, massive difference. Um... Yes, the Book of Lost Tales version had an intrusive frame too, James. Um, the yeah, Matt says, is this still supposed to be Bilbo's translation at this point? Matt, eventually, yes, it is, but I don't think it was yet. Um, and honestly, Matt, that's my theory as to that's my belief as to why Christopher took out the frame, um, but. Anyway, because the frame was changing, but whatever. Um, uh, yeah, um, exactly, Rihanna. And I, my, I think that that is the thinking, that if the Silmarillion is Bilbo's translations, then the Alphawina reference wouldn't fit. Exactly. Um, but the effect that it has on the tone, on the structure, on the sequence of things in the Aino Lindaway, um, this passage is a perfect example, right? There are lots of places in the Aino Lindaway when the narrative voice ceases telling us what happened and begins kind of making commentary and kind of explaining stuff, right? And there has always been, there always was to me when I was reading the Silmarillion in my early days, um, which of course were for me not as early as for some as I didn't get the Silmarillion when I first read it in the first time or two. Um, but uh, the, when I, reading the Aino Lindaway, there were a bunch of places where, like the question, who's talking here, right? Because it sounds like somebody's talking. And what is the relation, if I'm the audience, right? I mean, if this is, if, if this person is like speaking to me or writing for me, the reader of this text, 
what is my relationship with that person? It, it always felt to me a little bit weird. And now all of a sudden, right? You just put in the parenthetical as thou shalt hear Alfwina. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense then. Of course. Okay. So you've got an elvish scholar, right? Who is relating to Alfwina the writings of an older elf scholar, right? We've got Rumil, who's from Tuna, right? He's from he's from what will later be called Tyrion, right? He's from 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 Valinor, right? Um, pre-exile, the pre-exilic writings of Rumil, the scribe, and now we've got Pengalov, who is the one who's actually sitting down with Alfwina, the human being, and explaining this stuff to him. And Alfwina is going to bring it back, and that's where it's going to come from, right? Okay, so, um, and I t- to me. The difference that it makes to reinsert Alfwina, the Pengalov Alfwina frame, was just absolutely, it's, there's so much of it that I'm like, now all that stuff, which in the Ainuindale, in the published text, like, I'm like, I don't understand the flow. Why are we suddenly talking about this? Like, yeah, the, like, how the arrival at uh, Tolkis is, of, of Tolkis is, like, detached from the rest of the story and, um, it's like all oh, really weird, um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this makes a huge difference, and we can see. And so now, go back to the to this. Now, you read this passage about the final chord of the music again but you read it in the voice of Pengalov speaking to Alfwina. And now all of a sudden makes all kinds of sense, right? Deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, more glorious than the sun. Well, yeah, he, that's, him, that's him knowing his audience, right? Of course he's going to compare it to the sun. He's talking to a human being. What else is he going to compare it to, right? I mean, he could say more glorious than the trees, of which you've never heard, right? I mean, seriously, what kind of good is that? So what's he comparing it to? The firmament, right? The heavens that you can see above you, the sky. And he's comparing it to the sun, which you can also see, right? And the abyss, which at least you can imagine. Um, yeah, exactly, Marie. Alfwina lives in a world of the sun. He lives in a round world of the sun. Yeah, absolutely. So again, we can still see... Um, the reinsertion or the the reassertion perhaps i should say of alfwina as the audience of these stories um with an elvish teller to him actually is a really interesting tool to try to reconcile the round world and flat world things right um okay let's keep going more on the frame. But of all such matters, Alfwina, others shall tell thee, or thou shalt read another lore, for it is not my part at this time to instruct thee in the history of the earth. And now behold, here is the habitation of the children of Iluvatar established at the last in the deeps of time and amidst the innumerable stars. Even that phrasing, amidst the innumerable stars, when I am hearing this in the voice of a storyteller telling stories to a human audience sounds more right, sounds better, 
sounded weird and stilted when it was just like, I am a historian writing in a book and I'm going to, you know, in the deeps of time and amidst the innumerable stars. Right. Anyway, and here are the Valar, the powers of the world, contesting for the possession of the jewel of Iluvatar, and thus thy feet are on the beginning of the road. I love that. And thus thy feet are on the beginning of the road. Um, I absolutely, I absolutely think that when Tolkien is writing this, he's thinking about Bilbo's song. I absolutely think that he, he is. Remember, he's this, he's, this is happening, right? This drafting is happening after he's already written at least half of the two towers and before he started the, the Return of the King. Um, he's, the road goes ever on and on is already in his head, right? Um, and here are the Valar, the powers of the world, contesting for the possession of the jewel of Iluvatar, and thus thy feet are on the beginning of the road. Where does that road lead? You never know what'll happen when you step outside your door, right? Where you might get swept off to? Where's Alfwina going to get swept off to, ultimately? Where does this road lead? The road that begins with the Aina Windele? Where does it lead? Answer? The Grey Havens is where it leads. One long saga of the jewels and the rings. The saga that begins, the road that has its origins at the Ainuindale ends at the Grey Havens. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jewel of Iluvatar. Um, Josiah, you were noticing that. Um, that is a really fascinating kenning for the world, isn't it? Christopher explains in his foreword why he calls this book Morgoth's Ring, right? Because the whole world was Morgoth's Ring. All of Middle-earth was Morgoth's Ring. We'll get there later on. But um, he was showing how the story of Sauron and the Ring of Power really is, from the top down, an echo, a repetition, a type of Morgoth and his relationship with Arda, right? Um, right, it's all of Arda is Morgoth's ring, not Middle-earth. Um, the jewels, right? Just as Arda just as Arda is, you know, Arda and Morgoth are like Sauron in the ring, so the Valar and Arda are like the elves and the Silmarils, right? Um, you can't compare Arda, can't compare the world to a jewel in the Silmarillion context and not invite us to think of the Silmarils, right? Again, it, we can begin to see how that saga is working out in Tolkien's mind, right? 
what exactly that arc is that is connecting from the Aina Lindale to the Grey Havens, right? Um, how the beauty and wonder and subcreative energy of the Silmarils is like itself a synecdoche, a repetition, a type of the creation of Arda, the subcreation of Arda through the Valar, by the Valar, right? Um, and uh, just as Morgoth's relationship with Arda is similarly connected typologically to Sauron and the Ring, um, again, we can see just hints, just glimpses of the ways in which this story of the Lord of the Rings that Tolkien has been telling, right, that has been emerging in Tolkien's mind. The Silmarillion, again, it's not just now it's background, now it, they take part in the same world. They, they really are joined, right? You, we can begin to see how impractical though it may be, right, impractical though it may be, um, to uh, imagine the joint publication of the one long saga as we were saying there are ways in which it can work now Nancy's saying that it seems an uncomfortable comparison right between Arda and the Silmarils yeah in some ways though I still maintain that the Silmarils get a really bad rap I disagree with what a lot of how a lot of people talk about the Silmarils um uh, the that is like that the Silmarils are cursed and that they are like agents of destruction. Um, they're not, um, uh, but they are objects of desire, right? Um, they are precious, and they are beautiful, and they are glorious and wonderful, and therefore, the desire for them can easily go wrong. Nancy, as we see with Arda on many occasions, right? Arguably, even the Valar themselves. Think about the Valar. Think about the hiding of Valinor, right? Think about the straight road. Do not the Valar, to some extent and in some ways, hoard the beauty of Arda or seek to hoard the beauty of Arda? Like Van are they not do they not lock Valinor away in in their vault? Right? And uh begrudge the sight of them the uh to others? Is it uncomfortable? Yeah, it's uncomfortable, right? Um but Tolkien stories have really never been um uh have have really never been afraid of that particular piece of discomfort. Murray, exactly. The Silmarils are holy jewels. They are hallowed jewels. Uh, as Murray says, it's not the Silmarils' fault everyone else is so dang possessive. That's exactly, Murray, how I feel about that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Let's keep going. Look at me going fast. 
Therefore he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to fashion their life amid the powers and chances of the world beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And of their operation everything should be in shape and deed completed, and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. Lo, even we, elves, have found to our sorrow that men have a strange power for good or ill, and for turning things aside from the purpose of Valar or of elves, so that it is said among us that fate is not master of the children of men. Yet are they blind, and their joy is small, which should be great. One of the things I really like here is the unapologetic... Well, I won't say bias. I want to be fair to Pengalov here. Um, there are many times in the published Silmarillion, again, having not getting the frame, right? Since we don't have the frame, we have to remember. We have to remind ourselves. Don't forget, this is not objective. It's Without a frame, it sounds objective. All the things that are said in the Aino Indole sound like they're uttered by the mouth of God, right? Or... Uh, uh, Matt, as you say, um, Martin Shaw, which sounds pretty similar, I always fancy. Um, but uh, but anyway, again, it's just, it sounds like, doesn't the Anuindale sound super authoritative in the vo- with no frame, right? But now again, when it's put in the mouth, the mouth of an actual elf, right, speaking to a human, now all of a sudden it's very different, right? And here we can see this like unapologetic, right? Um, uh, we elves, right? This is one elf. Um, uh, this is one elf explaining how elves understand, what elves understand, how they look at the fate of humans, right? And he doesn't get it. Um, he, he's elf-splaining, <laughs> as John says. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's elf-splaining. I like that. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> yes. Yes. And Brian, that's exactly it. That is exactly it. Without the frame, the Ainulindale sounds like scripture, right? It sounds like it has that kind of authority. Um, yes. Yes. Oh, David, I often think of that. Um, David is saying, thinking about the, he's thinking of an analogy for the Silmarils. Um, uh, and the best that she can do is that it wasn't Helen's fault that men coveted her. Yeah, no, I, that's exactly the kind of thing that I think of. Oh, David, the comparison I've made before, and it's one that doesn't help very many people because it's from a book that almost nobody has read, which is book four of the Fairy Queen. Uh, book three also. Book three and four of the Fairy Queen. Um which almost nobody reads, but uh, there's a character called Florimel who's, uh, she's a female character and she's like the most beautiful woman in the world. And she spends literally her entire time running away from rapists. Like everyone, like as soon as any male person sees her, they immediately lust after her. And she, so she's literally like sprinting. She she gets like an amazing amount of cardio throughout books three and four of the fairy queen. Cause she's always running away from men who are trying to rape her because she's, the most beautiful, sexy woman on the face of the earth. And it's not ever, she's a totally good person. There's nothing wrong with her. She does nothing to deserve it or provoke it. Um, but she is the object of everybody else's desire. Um, so yeah, yeah. To me, that's the, the perfect illustration of it's how I think of the Silmarils. But um, again, it doesn't help most people, but um, Matt, 
Christopher removed the frame. Did Tolkien remove the frame or Christopher? Yeah. Uh, in the D text, which Christopher doesn't give us in full, but he gives us bits of it, we can still see the frame is still there in the D text. Um, Christopher removed it. Uh, and again, I, I, like, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to diss Christopher for making that choice. Um, he has some good reasons for that, and I do think it has a lot to do with Bilbo. Um, but, uh, but I miss it. I, I think the the elimination of it is enormous. Is enormous. Um, but um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, sorry. Christopher Bartlett says, I do a double take every time you refer to Christopher Tolkien. Yeah, I apologize. I apologize. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry. Sorry. Not, talk not talking about you. Uh, uh, all Christopher's present exempted. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. We will come back to the elvish perspective on the fate of men. But again, I just want to point out what a massive difference it makes to have, like, a flesh and blood elf saying these things, right? Um, the limitations of this perspective are clear, right? Um, when he says their joy is small, which should be great, it's very clear. Like, should be, like, for, as far as we can see, right? Based on our understanding, like, we we go, like, what's wrong with you people? Right? <laughs> like, you humans, like, you should be really happy and you're not. Like, what gives with you? As we'll see. Tolkien will come around to answering that question. Um, the human side uh, of this argument will be voiced uh, by Andreth later on, but um, um, not yet. Not yet. Um, yes, Josiah, it makes the whole Silmarillion more like the Athropath. Maybe that's what I like about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um Good. Yes, David, you're right. This passage emphasizes the the grass is always greener aspect uh, of elf man relations. Each kindred, uh, you know, envies the fate of the other. Yes. Yes. And you can you can hear that here. Right. This is not spoken again with that kind of abstract scriptural authority saying that, you know, uh, humans have been blessed in these ways and should really be more grateful. It's instead an elf saying, like, as far as we can see, you guys have it good. And of course, humans will and would say exactly the same thing. Um, yes, Matt, I do suspect that the fact that it was Christopher who removed the frame has a lot to do with why he DM he downplays the significance of removing the frame. I do kind of suspect that. Um, okay, all right, we're late. That's okay. That's okay. Um, a couple last things I want to touch on. With the Aino Endaway, we'll finish that. You will see that even though I've only scheduled six sessions, I have scheduled like four four out of the twelve sections sessions that I've scheduled uh, in this class are catch up sessions. So I, I wasn't wholly naive in my scheduling. Uh, anyway, okay. Now that we've laid the uh, the the groundwork, though, we're it'll be much faster from here. Trust me. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fine. Um, so okay. So uh, continue reading next section for next time we'll finish this up and then we will uh we'll see uh we'll see how things go on uh from here uh so keep following the reading uh though it's i, I apologize a fairly aggressive reading schedule a comparatively aggressive reading schedule i know certainly compared to the reading schedule in exploring the lord of the rings but anyway thanks very much everybody for joining me tonight this was a really fun session and i look forward to talking again next week bye now everybody Thank you.
The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.